The city of Jerusalem, this city will become perfectly safe again. Very interesting as we study, and this is Zechariah. I'm, I'm telling you, this is an amazing passage in Zechariah 8. We're going to study that in about five minutes. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Embry. I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV, a program taking you through the Bible. And when you're from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. Corey and Ryan are here. Corey? I'm taking a look at horses, chariots, and Zechariah chapter 6. Ryan? Well, the prophet Zechariah refers to a man whose name is the branch in Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. We'll talk about this man later on. You know, that's really interesting, Ryan. We'll see that in about uh, 20 minutes. Janice? The blessings of God. All right, there you have it, all coming your way in the next half hour. So get your Bible guide out. If you don't have one, we'll tell you how to get one a little bit later. But right now, let's begin to study the Word of God. Open up your Bible and let's read what it says. Zechariah 8, 1 through 8. Again the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal. With great fervor I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the City of Truth, the Mountain of the Lord of Hosts, the Holy Mountain. Thus says the Lord of Hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. The streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back, and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem." They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. I mean, Zechariah chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, and chapter 8, that's what we study today. Now, this is Jerusalem. Now, the name Jerusalem means city of peace. Though this name might seem ironic for us today, thanks to decades of political turmoil, Jerusalem is still the most mentioned city in the Bible. It is first mentioned in Genesis as the city of Salaam, when Abraham tithes his spoils of war to the priest king Melchizedek. Later in scripture, Jerusalem is taken over and made the capital city of Israel by King David. And the city is chosen by God to be the place where his temple will be. The Bible even speaks of Jerusalem as the place where Yeshua HaMashiach will return to. And there's a lot of anticipation. What will happen? 
when Christ returns and reigns as king of kings. But Zechariah 8 is about rebuilding Jerusalem. God says that he is zealous for Zion, which is the city of Jerusalem, and that his love for the city is intense. This is perhaps one of the reasons that believers are called to pray for Jerusalem. In Psalm 122, verses 6 and 8, here's what it says. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brethren and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. Now, I want to encourage you today, very important, that you read Psalm 122, because this is God's commandment. Pray for the peace of the city of peace. Jerusalem. Seems kind of strange, doesn't it? Pray for peace in the city of peace. Yeah, pray that God's will will be done there in the city of peace, which is divided into four sections right now. Very interesting. Now, as we go onward, I want you to turn your Bible guide to today's passage. It's really interesting. And just remember that you can call us or you can write to us or you can go to Bible Discovery TV and click on the Bible guide. It'll take you to a page that says PDF file and you can download it just like we printed it. And you can join us in this study through the Bible. It's very exciting. Zechariah chapter 8. Oh, this is a good one, I'm telling you. Well, uh, Zechariah chapter 5 begins with a vision of the flying scroll. Then the vision of the woman with a basket. Then chapter 6 begins with the vision of the four chariots and the command of Joshua. And then the obedience is better than fasting. Did you get that? Obedience is better than fasting. That's in chapter 7. Disobedience results in captivity. And in chapter 8, Jerusalem, holy city of the future. Okay, this is really something. This is a... I, we, Father, I pray today, as we read this, help us to hear you. You know, we got a lot of ideas that we put on things, but Lord... Your future is almost here. It's ready to come. And I pray, Father, that we would hear you. In Jesus' wonderful name, and we said together, amen and amen. Now remember, we read from the Bible, not read to the Bible. We, read from, we let the Bible change our hearts. We don't change the Bible or manipulate it like so many people try to do. We read from the Bible. So let's listen to the scripture. Here is what it says in Zechariah chapter 8, the first three verses. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am zealous for Zion with great zeal, with great fervor. I am zealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth. The city of truth. The mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. That's incredible. Jerusalem will be called the mountain of the Lord, the city of truth. God has given these names to Jerusalem, the holy city of the future. Did you see that? That's amazing. I mean, God knows what he's doing. And I mean, we need to think about this. So everybody's kind of watching Jerusalem. 
Now, there's something else that happens, too. You ever notice that many Jewish people pray to Jerusalem? Specific times in the day. There's a reason for that. God is coming back there. He's already been there once. He's coming back there again. And he's coming back to reign, let me tell you. It's going to be very, very interesting. And we need to understand that that's why God is doing it. Watch Jerusalem. Now, we go to chapter 8 and we go to verse 4. Here's what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem. Each one with his staff in his hand because of great age. So they're growing old. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts. If it is marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of his people in these days, will it also be marvelous in my eyes, says the Lord of hosts. Now this is fascinating. The city will become safe again. That's one of the major factors in Jesus' ruling. The city is anything but safe and peaceful today, right now. But it will be in the future, beloved. God is going to make things very different. This world is going to be totally different. There'll be no fighting going on when the Lord rules. And we can learn this from reading the Bible, from understanding what the prophets have said. Isn't that great? I told you there was a good reason to read the Bible. Anyway, watch Jerusalem. Watch Israel. That's important. All right. Now we got two verses to read here. This is interesting. Zechariah 8, 7 and 8 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and rightness with God or righteousness. Now, God will rule in Jerusalem in truth, the city of truth, and in rightness with God, in righteousness. We will begin to know the peace of Jerusalem. It's called the city of peace. The closer we get to the end of time. And everybody says, well, what doesn't look like it's peaceful now? It's divided up into four, of course. But God can do anything, and he is doing it. Now, when I say watch Jerusalem, when I say watch Israel, I am not kidding. Watch. Things are going to be very different there. Things are going to switch and change quickly. And the Lord is doing something, praise God. And we need to pay attention to what he's doing because the Bible tells us. We need to be, be sure that we are ready to go because God is going to do something amazing. A lot of things to talk about when we get to the New Testament. Let me tell you, we're getting there this month. But peace be to Jerusalem. This character of King Saul, this historical figure. Now, I think it's probably fair to say that most of us when we think of King Saul, we think of the bad guy foil to King David. But an entire book of the Bible is also dedicated to mostly his reign. Of course, that's 1 Samuel. So I'm really excited to jump into it today and see what we can learn about Saul. 
Today, I wanted to draw our attention to Zechariah chapter 6 because there's some really interesting ancient imagery that's used here to describe the intensity of, of God's power, to describe the swiftness of his judgment. And that imagery is using horses and chariots. In this vision, Zechariah looks up and he sees four uh, teams of chariot horses with, with hitched chariots coming out from between two mountains of bronze and then and uh, there's really interesting language used of these horses and chariots, and uh, they're not real ones. They they are uh, they are heavenly horses and chariots. But let's take a look first at how the ancient world understood and used uh, real life horses and chariots. Beginning in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, horses are mentioned frequently in the context of war. At first, horses and chariots are the terrifying tools of the enemies of Israel, Pharaoh's chariots and the deadly iron chariotry of the Philistines, for example. In those early days of Israel as a nation, they themselves did not possess a chariotry. But as the time of the kings of Israel unfolded, horsemanship and chariot warfare became a primary goal. By the third king, Solomon, we see Israel buying horses in bulk, building chariot cities, and organizing a centralized feeding system for the nation's horses. A few generations later, during the reign of King Ahab, two enemy nations would record on documents that still survive Ahab and Israel's unusually powerful chariot force. The Teldan Stella says that Ahab brought 2,000 chariots to battle, which would represent anywhere from four to 6,000 chariot horses. This seems to confirm an Assyrian record that claims Ahab brought the strongest chariot force to the Battle of Karkar, again, numbering 2,000 chariots. Scholar and modern horse professional Deborah O'Daniel Cantrell has argued for a modern misunderstanding of the archaeological evidence for horses and chariotry in ancient Israel, largely based off a misunderstanding of the needs and training regimes of horses. Her work points to the city of Megiddo as an exemplar of a chariot city, showing convincing evidence for horse stabling, including horse chewing marks on remaining feeding troughs as well as interpreting Israel's four- and six-chambered gates as chariot hitching stations. Chariot horses were a most feared weapon. They were trained to kill by trampling, and in the words of Cantrell, they were trained to be addicted to speed, which is what made them both a fearsome weapon and difficult to control in the heat of battle. Horses were also very difficult to kill, with spear, arrow, and sword wounds exciting them further and with their circulatory system allowing their drivers hours to get them back to camp to deal with what could have been deadly wounds. Horses' main weakness, on the other hand, is their stamina. Horses' exhaustion levels need to be strictly controlled by their drivers, otherwise they would work themselves to death. This meant that to battle successfully, a chariotry would need to have waves of chariots that would fight and retreat to camp for rest. Another weakness is the horse's startle reflex, which could send an excited warhorse on an uncontrolled, deadly flight. History seems to show that enemy armies were always trying new tactics to startle enemy horses while desensitizing their own horses to the same stimuli. 
There were parts of the war horse's apparel that did help with this. Horses wore blinders to limit their vision by up to 90%, and multiple bells were incorporated onto their gear. This could have multiple benefits, helping horses match each other's gates, announcing their presence, and creating a comforting white noise for the horses. Whether we think of the heavenly horses that accompanied Elijah to heaven, the fearsome chariot driver King Jehu, or the war horses of Revelation, it's clear that horses were tremendously important in the history of Israel. So with this as our background, this knowledge of ancient war horses and chariots, uh, we see Zechariah ask the angel in his vision what these things represent, what these four chariots represent. And the angel answers him in verse five of chapter six and says, these are the four spirits of heaven going out from standing in the presence of the Lord of the whole world. So we get God's uh, power being represented here uh, by, by an army, by the most powerful and, and the fastest thing known to ancient man, which were uh, chariots uh, that were specifically trained. And I love verse seven because it says, when the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go throughout the, the earth. They wanted to go, they were trembling, which is what the Bible talks about over and over. And it's based off of human experience, even racehorses today, we know how excited uh, horses can get, uh, but they were being held back. And then he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. So this emphasizes the, the fast fulfillment of God's judgment. When he gives the word, it's going to happen. It's not going to be late. It's not going to be early. It's going to be just on time. It's swift, it's fast, it's intense, and it's sure. Excellent. Excellent. What is Saul? Who is Saul? Right. Well, how do we know about it? Yes. That question, who is Saul, is what we uh, looked at in my six part Bible study called Understanding Saul, a journey through first Samuel. Uh, if you get a hold of this, you will get assigned reading that you read before you come to the session at six sessions. Uh, there's about a half an hour teaching and then there's discussion questions. So the idea is that you'll think about it and you'll discuss it with your Bible study partners. If you would like to get a hold of this, you can find out more information on our website, or of course you can call or write. You can either get a physical copy or a digital download from our website, and it's for a suggested donation of $60 to keep the ministry going strong. Get it? I recommend it. Ryan? All right, well, today my segment is based on Zechariah 6.12, which identifies Joshua the priest as a representation of the coming branch. And this isn't the first time we've seen this title, both in Isaiah 4.2 and Isaiah 11.1. The prophet refers to the coming Messiah as a branch, and as well as Jeremiah as well. And to modern Western readers like myself, this might sound kind of strange, and actually, we might not even really get it. And that's because our style of learning is very different from the Middle Eastern culture, which is the cultural context of the Bible. And remember, though the Bible is God-breathed, God allowed the culture and personalities of the human authors to come through. And so the Bible teaches its readers primarily through the Middle Eastern method of learning. So in order for us to us Westerners to really grasp the meaning of these branch passages, we need to read them with Eastern eyes. So let's do that. On at least five different occasions, three different Old Testament prophets refer to the coming Redeemer as a branch. While this imagery holds much meaning for Jews and Middle Easterners, for modern Western readers, its full impact and significance is sometimes lost in translation. 
That's largely because Westerners, as cultural descendants of the Greeks, are used to the conceptual and analytical learning style developed by the philosophers, whereas Easterners prefer to use real-world imagery to communicate truth. Also, while we in the West typically put more importance on individual identity, Eastern culture places more significance upon the family identity. In fact, in the Eastern mindset, what was enduring was not so much the individual, but the family, and people thoroughly invested themselves in the larger identity of their family. This family-centric view can be eloquently illustrated through the real-world imagery of a tree and its branches. The tree is like the family, and the branches on that tree are like the individuals within that family. Each branch, like a family member, will leaf out and bear fruit, but at some point it will wither and die. The tree, however, lives on. The family is what's important and long-lasting. If God blesses you, many shoots will come from you that will grow into enormous limbs that will bear fruit and mature and grow. This is precisely the image the prophets have in mind when they portray this coming messianic figure as a branch. For example, Isaiah chapter 11 verse 1 declares and decrees that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. The imagery here is that the family is a tree, and the Messiah would be a branch on that tree, a descendant of David's line. Additionally, David's father was Jesse, so the Messiah could also be called a shoot from Jesse's line. Part of the imagery of the shoot is that when trees are cut back, they send out long, straight shoots from the base. These are used to make king's scepters and tribal leaders' staffs. Although this royal messianic branch was cut off and died, death could not hold him, because he wasn't merely human. Indeed, this Messiah, the one and only Jesus Christ, was and is the Creator God Himself, and as such, He isn't just the branch, but as the source of life, He's also the root and the vine. In fact, His death and resurrection allowed us to become the branches. If we choose to live in Him, we become a part of His family tree. We become the very sons and daughters of God, and that tree, along with all of its fruit, twigs, and branches, will never wither and die. So hopefully you were able to see now why the Old Testament prophets often referred to the promised Redeemer as a branch. It's very powerful imagery, which I tried to connect at the end there. But as I say here frequently on the program, do your own study. Don't just take my word for it. Be like those Bereans in Acts 17. Of course, I do my best with these segments, but they could never be God-breathed like the scriptures. We have to test everything by the word of God. Everything. Everything must be tested by the Word of God. A lot of people, you know, there's a lot of people today who are prophesying this and saying this leader and that leader will do this. We need to read the Bible because it has all of that information in it. So, and we'll talk about that as we get closer to the New Testament. Janice? Yes, the blessings of God is what I titled my segment today. Now, what we see here is the message drastically changing from chapter 7 of Zechariah into chapter 8 of Zechariah. In chapter 7, we're talking about obedience. God's saying obedience is better than fasting here, and how that uh, his people's disobedience resulted in captivity. And then it switches in chapter 8, dramatically changes from judgment into God's blessings. God announces restoration to his people through Zechariah. In verse 7 and 8 of chapter 8, it says this, Behold, 
I will save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west. I will bring them back and they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. And you know that God that declared that to his people then is the same God that we serve today. And he is our God in truth and in righteousness and we are blessed by God and we need to remember that. So I just wanna encourage you today to remember God's blessing in our lives. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross willingly that in the shedding of his perfect blood, it washed our sins away if we would repent to him. If we would ask Jesus, Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross and that you can forgive my sins. I, I ask you for your forgiveness today. Would you come and live in my heart today? And I believe that you rose from the dead three days later. And with that, you give me the gift of eternal life. If you call on the name of the Lord today and you truly mean it, then you are saved. That's what my Bible says. And so trust in the work of God, trust in God's blessings. Today, I wanna thank God for blessing me with his salvation with forgiving me of my sins and forgiving me the gift of eternal life, that when I pass from this life here and this body, when this body gets old and tired, I don't, this body dies, but my spirit lives on with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is our blessed hope. And so today, may I just encourage you to Make a list to just sit and spend time with God. And like that old song, count your blessings, name them one by one. You know, if we really truly sat and counted the blessings of God in our life, we would be there for a few days, wouldn't we? We wouldn't have to look too far back to see God's faithfulness and God's blessing. Even Jeremiah, who we call the weeping prophet, he wrote in Lamentations, in a book full of tears for all of the things that Israel had done against God. Uh, Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. And that's what we need to remind ourselves today of all of the wonderful blessings of God. And he calls us back to him. You haven't gone too far. Turn your life around to God. Come back to him today. Come back home in the name of Jesus. Today we pray, and as we do again, we're praying for Jerusalem, and we have promised that we would tell you, read Psalm 122, this is very important. So, Lord, I decide, and those people who are praying with me decide to put our trust in you. We're not, we're not putting our trust in the people of this world, and we're not putting our trust in places in this world. 
or the money in this world. But Lord, we put our trust in you. You will help us through everything. In Jesus' name.